This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book of the Wednesday dinner hour service. And we have for the last few weeks been considering one link in the great chain of God's redemptive purpose and we've entitled it All of One. But that has to do mainly with sanctification and it was a long way down the stream of time. And I felt that as we have an unseen audience as well as the company that meet in this chapel it would be a wise thing if we said let's take a wider view of this work of Christ that means so much to us. Naturally, as you are Christians and been Christians for years and know your Bible in some measure of fullness, many of the things that I have to say will not be new to you, but they're blessedly true and they should be given a hearing. So I'm considering that we now continue and take a wider, longer, deeper view of the work of Christ. Now, you remember that our Saviour to the Samaritan woman said, My meat and my drink is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And then, having reached Jerusalem with a full intent of going right through to the end, in that great prayer which is recorded in John 17, our Saviour said, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And then, on the cross, when the work was completed, just before he died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, he said, it is finished. So there was a work committed to him. But although it's true, and blessedly true, that the work was finished at the cross, the fruits of it are yet future. Sin has not been eradicated from God's universe. Violence and wickedness and death are still here. So there's a future application of that work which will go on till we reach a passage in the scripture that says, Then cometh the end, that God may be all in all. And again, with regard to this emphasis upon the work, not only does John's Gospel emphasize that Christ came to do a work, but in his first epistle he came Christ to came to undo a work. Perhaps you would like to look at that passage. 1 John 3, 8. 1 John 3, 8. Halfway, it says in the 8th verse, He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy. Now later on when we are dealing with this more intimately, I shall retranslate that to undo. He came to undo the works of the devil. So you see, there's two sides to this work. A positive side, he came to do a work, and he came to undo a work. He came to undo the work of the devil. Now this has to do particularly here with sin, for it says, the devil sinneth from the beginning. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, there the work of Christ which again undoes or obliterates or destroys, has to do with the wages of sin, which is death. Hebrews 2, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy them that had the power, him that had the power of death, that is the devil. 
So he came to undo the works of the devil with regard to sin, and he came to undo the works of the devil with regard to its consequences, death. Well, that's a blessed gospel to realize that straight away, isn't it? That this work was not pitied against poor, ignorant, sinful man merely. It was pitied against the originator of both sin and death. And the, the work would never have been finished if we had been forgiven, but the evil one had never been put out of place. So I feel that these things should be pursued by us perhaps a little more intimately. Now, today, of course, we've already used up a part of our time, and um, although our clock has permanently stopped, that won't give me the uh, reason to uh, go on beyond our limits. So, all I can do now, in the time left me, is to give you a sort of preface, a sort of contents bill, so that you may already anticipate the way in which we should have to deal with this. Now, where shall we begin? Where shall we begin with this work of Christ? Well, if you were dealing with an ordinary man, you might say you'd begin when he was born. Or you may go back to his parents. But are we dealing with an ordinary man? At the last page of the Bible, we have a, a, a problem if he's just an ordinary man, for the title he has there wouldn't make any sense with regard to you or to me. Will you just glimpse at that? The last chapter in the book of the Revelation, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root. Well, you can understand that. I am the offspring. You could understand that. But how could a person be both root and offspring? <coughs> I am the root and offspring of David. Well, anybody who can say that is no ordinary, ordinary, everyday person. I did read once uh, a book. It says, however enthusiastic you were over Abraham Lincoln, you would hardly go back to the geological origin of the Niagara Falls to start his biography. I mean, it, it would be an absurd thing for an American to go right back to the geological history of the Niagara Falls for millions and millions of years to lead up to Abraham Lincoln. But when I come to this book, this goes back to before creation. In fact, we shall see as we go on that the word beginning in Genesis 1 not only refers to a note of time, but to a person. Only you've got to read right through the Bible from Genesis to get to the book of the Revelation to read that he is the beginning of the creation of God. So here's a person then that we cannot tie down to the ordinary rules of biography. He exceeds all our limits. So there's nothing for it, but we must go back. In the scriptures, when we start the uh, first chapter of Matthew, we have the seed of Abraham. And we have the seed of David. And when we come to Luke's Gospel, we have going back to Adam. And then we find that we've got to go back earlier still, because we discover that there is a purpose that is linked and dated with a period called before the foundation of the world. And Christ is associated with that. In John 17, in that prayer we've already quoted, our Saviour says, Thou lovest me, before the foundation of the world. Well, if we leave it as it stands in our aversion, that's far enough back, isn't it? Thou lovest me. Glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. 
So that goes back to Genesis 1. And then we read in the first epistle of Peter that Christ was verily foreordained to be a lamb without blemish and without spot before the foundation of the world. So here's the purpose in the mind of God, focusing on the person of his Son before this present creation came into existence. What a mighty sweet then when we think of the redemptive work of Christ that he could say that work has finished so far as the effectiveness of it was concerned, the fruits of it, the consummation of it, is waiting that day which is to come. So that you see, looking at the subject in this way, there's nothing for it but to begin at the beginning. And so, when we meet together on these Wednesdays, we shall have to patiently trace, link by link, this chain of the work of Christ going back before the foundation of the world and going on until we reach that verse which says, Then cometh the end. Shall we anticipate the verse we shall be dealing in the year 1962 or 63 or whenever it should be? Shall we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to see the end that is being aimed at all the time that this redemptive purpose is working out? It used to be the, the habit of our grandparents when they had a book to always turn to the last page and see if they lived happy ever afterwards. But books nowadays always end up with a chaos or something. That's uh, the modern version. But here we can turn and see what is in the goal. What is the goal of God? What is in his mind? What is it all for? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then cometh the end. Now you'll see when comes several times and then we reach the end. So let's go these steps. Then cometh the end. The first when. When he should have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. The second. When he should have put down all rule and all authority and power. Then at the interval. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. You remember I mentioned just now in the first of John, he came to undo the works of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. And then in Hebrews 2, he came to undo the power of death, for he had the power of death, that was the devil. Now, he is finished, you see, he's reached that place. For he hath put all things under his feet. Now, this is a reference back to Psalm 8, which looks back to Adam, who had dominion over the cattle, and looks on to Christ, who had principalities and powers under his feet, not sheep and oxen. But it all shows you that the purpose of God was in his heart and mind, being unfolded and as the time went on. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then, now we've got the then. Just now we had the when. Now we have the consequent then. Shall the Son also himself be subject unto him to put all things under him that God may be all in all. In creation, God is all. He spake and it was done. There was no possibility of sun, moon or star turning round and disobeying. They don't even know they obey. And then God made a moral creature. And the moral creature brought with him the word if, a contingency. If you do that, God says, I will do that. And that's the reason why we've got such a conflict now. But a day will come when 
Those who turn round and say no to God will by redeeming love willingly say yes. And then God will not be all, but God will be all in all. And the epistle to the Colossians tells us that Christ is anticipating that in the church today where Christ is all and in all. So we have a little anticipation of the day that is coming. Well then we have the nature of his saving work. We have to consider his names. When he was born at Bethlehem, his mother gave him the name Jesus. And I think you do know that the word Jesus is the word that you would find in the Old Testament Greek version for Joshua. The name Joshua or Jesus means the salvation of the Lord. And then it goes on to say he fulfilled a prophecy which gave him another name. He should be called Emmanuel, that is God with us. And the word Emmanuel is going to open the door so that we must consider the great uh, feature of the Old Testament, the kinsman redeemer. For as by man came death, by man must come the resurrection. <coughs> and then we have the birth at Bethlehem so that it links on with David and all the covenants, promises that have to do with David and the kingdom. And then the great focus of the scripture is a sacrificial work from the beginning, where you get the clothing with the coats of skin and the difference between Abel and Cain, right through to the book of the Revelation, when they say unto him that loved us and loosed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kingdom of priests. There's a sacrificial work underlying the whole purpose. The finished work is a sacrificial work. We should have to consider the imputation of righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, the question of sanctification, the difference between the death of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, and the blood that was shed by Christ, they all differ. And then the application and purpose of the cross of Christ, and why Peter doesn't say the word cross, but always says a tree. Why the difference? You know already, but we must consider it. And then, after all that has been done, the cross endured, the blood shed, the death, burial, if there be no resurrection from the dead, we are all most miserable. For that is the receipt that God has given that he's accepted the offering and now the door is open for resurrection and the ascension. There's quite a number of folks speak of the finished work of Christ and they omit the word ascension. But he ascended and sat down at the right hand of God and we shall see that anyone who sits down who's done a sacrificial work is very different from the priests of the Old Testament who offered daily the self-same sacrifices and stood to do it and never sat down at all. And so I think we've got a program in front of us that may well occupy our hearts and minds for many a day to come. And I trust, when it is over, we should have given such a survey to the Old Testament and the New as to make it absolutely impossible for anyone so to do, either to doubt the inspiration of the book that could foreshadow all this outworking or doubt the love of God in sending his son or doubt the holiness of God in making it necessary that a sacrifice should be offered. It's like speaking like to try to beat Niagara Falls, isn't it? But there it is. That's all I've been able to do in the limited time. But I'm suggesting that those of you, especially those of you who are listening to this tape, if you come prepared next time with a sheet of paper so that you can just put down figure one and whatever the link in the chain might be. And then the next time, figure two, the next link. 
And then if you can build it all up as we go on, you'll have in front of you a picture, as it were, of the great chain with all its links going back before the foundation of the world and on beyond the new heavens and new earth when God is all in all, so that then you can say, oh, I'll start all over again and see if I can discover more beauties in this than has been given even in this brief survey. So there we bring this to a conclusion once again.